Recently, I had the pleasure of visiting with Jennifer Champeau, an art historian about Latter-day Saint religious art. Her research has primarily focused on the way religious belief influences art. But in a recent article, she wrote about how art also can influence religious belief. In this episode, join us for Jennifer Champeau's enlightening perspective on the relationship between Latter-day Saint religious artwork and religious understanding. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Hello, this is Laura Harris-Hales. I'm here today with Jenny Champeau, who has an interesting background. You have a master's in art history, but that's not what you started out studying. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? Sure, thank you. I went to Brigham Young University and got my undergraduate degree in international politics, political science, and I did a minor in art history. I went on an art history study abroad to Europe and then ended up writing an honors thesis paper on a Flemish artist and just fell in love with the research and writing process in art history and realized that that was really where, where, what I love to do. Uh, so I decided to pursue a, a master's degree in art history and uh, took some extra art history classes, learned French, and uh, did my graduate work at Boston University studying Dutch art of the Golden Age, Baroque art. You lecture part-time on art history right now, don't you? I do. I'm adjunct faculty at Northeastern University. Our discussion today is based on your article, Wise or Foolish Women in Mormon Biblical Narrative Art, which was published in the summer 2018 issue of BYU Studies Quarterly, which is a tough venue. So congratulations. <laughs> I was very excited. Yeah. What motivated you to write about religious visual imagery? Well, um, coming from a background studying Flemish and Dutch art from the 15th to 17th centuries, I had studied a lot of art that had religious content and symbolism, and I thought a lot about the ways that religious belief can influence artistic styles and depictions. For example, I have always been interested in the way Rubens, who was painting in Catholic Flanders in Antwerp, his depictions of biblical scenes is so different from Rembrandt, who was just a hundred miles away in Amsterdam, but it's Protestant Netherlands there, and where Rubens is more focused on the narrative and these very heroic, larger-than-life figures and in um, idealized flesh. Uh, Rembrandt has a lot more inner drama, more of the focus on the individual, more psychological a little less heroic and a little more down-to-earth and gritty. Uh, so I've always been interested in, in the way religious belief influences art, and that led me to think about our own LDS art, too. And I think we do have a lot of visual art. I think we're surrounded by it in our culture, but we don't often tend to engage with it very closely. In, uh, before moving to Virginia, we lived in Colorado, and in, our, in my Relief Society room there in Denver, we had, on either side of the lectern, two huge reproductions, one side of Walter Rain's 
five of them were wise, the parable of the ten virgins. And on the other side was Minerva Teichert's Jesus at the home of Mary and Martha. And so I sat there every Sunday trying to make sense of these two images and thinking about issues of placement. Why were these specific images chosen for the Relief Society room? How do they interact with each other the way they're placed here? What's the message that they're sending? Just as a little background, what are the different types of visual imagery? Sure. So when we think of traditional uh, visual art, we might think of things like painting, sculpture, drawing, but that would also encompass things like crafts, photography, film, architecture. So in LDS art, that might mean temples and meeting houses. There's also just the, the larger category of visual culture and material culture, and that would include things like our text, um, so scriptures, manuals, other books and texts, historical sites, uh, personal devotional objects. And that's really not something we often think about with with LDS culture, but, we, but if you maybe think about a CTR ring, uh, that can be seen as a kind of a personal devotional object, something that you wear to remind you of your faith and to try to bring you closer to God. There's also figural versus non-figural. So figural is things that portray people or, or animals, anthropomorphic images, uh, whereas non-figural can be a lot more uh, geometric and abstract, sometimes even calligraphic or, or textual. LDS art is not really tied to r- ritual practice. In some religions, art actually plays a role in the way you interact with God or the way you perform a sacrament or an ordinance. And in our you know, in our LDS chapels, they're usually very, very sparse, very clean lines, hardly ever um, have art or painting or sculpture in the chapel. And we don't actually use art in any ritual way. Why is visual art important? Visual art, I think, really has the power to elevate the senses. And that's obviously important in a religious setting. I think art does have the power to express the intangible. The Italian Renaissance artist and theorist Alberti um, wrote in, in De Pictura in 1435, he wrote, uh, art can, or painting can make the absent present. And I think art really does do that. We use art also to visualize scripture or history. So it has an educational purpose, a, a way to communicate. And I think art can reveal a new way of thinking about the world or about an idea Latter-day Saints use art differently than other major religions. I think that's fairly obvious from the difference in how our chapels look. How does that differ? Have you noticed a Mm -hmm. common approach to how LDS artists make art and how it's displayed or used? Sure. Yeah. So a couple of of questions there. So Thinking about comparing it to other religions, a couple of weeks ago, we took my daughter up to New York for the first time. She's nine years old, and we took her into St. Patrick's Cathedral, and it was her first time going into a cathedral, and she was overwhelmed and amazed at the, the stained glass, the vaulted ceilings, the, the statues, the, the huge organ pipes. And I asked her what she thought about the space, how she felt, what... what what, did it feel different? Did it feel special? And she said, yeah, it felt special. It felt sacred. It felt separate from the world um, in a special way. And she actually turned to me and said, Mom, if I went to church here, I wouldn't be so bored <laughs> during church because I'd have something to look at. 
in our LDS culture, we have more of this Protestant iconoclast uh, kind of tradition of, of stripping it down and um, not focusing on all of that. We do have those spaces, yeah, but it's not where we worship weekly. Mm-hmm. It's in our temples. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, but but our our weekly meetings, um, we're pretty casual about it. I've heard Terrell Givens talk about you know trying to listen to state conference sitting under a basketball hoop and <laughs> on a metal folding chair, you know, in the in the gym overflow area. There's a Dutch painting by Emmanuel De Vita um, of the Oude Kirk. Uh, this is from the 17th century, and he has this is so this is Protestant, you know, Dutch. And right in the middle, there's two little boys scribbling on a column of the church, and then next to them, there's another column, and a little dog is lifting his leg up on the column. And then there's a broom, just sort of someone's just left it kind of perched there, just propped up. I feel like I have been to ward parties that have been about this casual about the way we treat our meeting houses and I just I think that's a really interesting comparison and it's one of the reasons why I loved Dutch art is because I see those parallels between the way the LDS people today and and the Dutch people then were navigating between the sacred and profane and and sort of renegotiating and collapsing those boundaries the way that I think we are today. The other part of your question, I think, was how LDS art works for people today. So LDS artwork functions in several ways. Uh, It can have more of a devotional purpose, so drawing your mind to God. It can be didactic, so teaching lessons and and communicating. And it can be appreciated just for its aesthetic qualities, its formal qualities, too. LDS art, I think, tends towards the detailed and highly realistic. So if you think of artists like Del Parson, um, Harry Anderson, Arnold Freeberg, Simon Dewey, very realistic looking, lots of detail, and try to look like something really looks in the world. Recently, that's begun to change a little bit. I think uh, we have artists like J. Kirk Richards, Brian Krzyznik, and Jorge Coco, who are using a little bit more sketchy style. It's a little more self-conscious of the medium. And I've seen some of their images appearing in the Ensign and in the new Come Follow Me manuals. And that's that's an exciting change. And it's just nice to have the variety, to have both. Things. I've noticed that as well. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, it's a new picture. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that Latter-day Saint artists tend toward the realistic. How do these interpretations maybe lead to misconceptions, especially in a global church? That's a great question. I do think that when the images are highly realistic, a general audience might look at it and think that it's authentic, like a photograph, that it represents something that really happened. Laura Allred Hurtado at the Church History Museum has talked about the way even Carl Block's famous image of Christ healing at, at the Pool of Bethesda was actually recreated by the church in the New Testament video because they believe that using an image that Mormons, LD, sorry, members of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints already knew would lend authenticity to the film. So I think there is that idea that if it looks realistic and it's put out by the church, then people might assume this is how it really happened. This is how it really looked. In some cases, that's probably fine. In other cases, there may be more nuances or different ways to interpret a scripture story or an event. Noel Carmack wrote about this in 
an article in 2000 about images of Christ, where he chronicles the way Christ has been portrayed in LDS art and how that has changed over the years, which is really fascinating. And also Anthony Sweat at BYU has done some great work on pointing out the ways that images of historical events in the church, such as the translation of the Book of Mormon by Joseph Smith, that the images have really affected the way people think about that story and talk about the way it really happened. And Anthony Sweat pointed out that a lot of, I think really all of the official images put out by the church showed Joseph Smith looking as if he's actually reading the plates and translating directly from the plates. And we know from eyewitness accounts that's that's not what happened. So I think that's that's a really interesting example of of how images affect the way we understand history and scripture. Also, I think it just has the potential to create inflexible thinking when the images are so highly realistic and we see them as being the one and only way of thinking about them. And it doesn't leave a lot of room for interpretation or, or personal revelation about about that idea. You use the phrase canonized art to refer to images officially endorsed by the church. What was the problem you found with the canonized art of biblical women? In the article, I define what I call canonized or official art as art that has been put out by the church in um, either the gospel media library online or in the little the little booklet or is available for sale on the LDS.org store website, or is owned by the Church History Museum or sold through their store. So this seems to me to be the main sources of art that seems to be put out by the church and that people are encountering the most often in church materials and meeting houses and just in their worship. But we do tend to see women in all of this art as fairly one-dimensional figures and Uh, almost always follow a pattern of traditional Christian visual interpretations of women in the Bible. Are women and men portrayed similarly in gospel art? Yeah, actually, no. (laughs) And partly that's a product of the scriptures themselves and of the the time and place. But, I mean, we do have a lot more men in in the art than women. But what's also interesting is that you see men in groups. So, for example, when Moses calls Aaron uh, to the priesthood, and that's the, the famous painting by Harry Anderson that we see a lot. It's a group of men united together. We see pictures of Jesus and his disciples together. We see men listening to sermons together. We don't really ever see women in groups like that. Sometimes we'll see them kind of scattered into a group, maybe in a Sermon on the Mount type picture. Um, There might be a couple of women thrown in there. But mostly we see women as solitary and heroic figures. An example would be Robert Barrett's Hannah presenting her son Samuel to Eli. And we see women alone, heroic, doing a good thing. We don't really see groups of women. The only time we do see groups of women is just in two cases in the scripture stories that are visualized. And that is in the parable of the ten virgins and the time that Jesus visited the home of Mary and Martha. You mentioned the two pictures in your Release Society room that displayed the black and white of those two group scenes. Tell us about the wise versus foolish motif you found in these depictions. I'll start with the ten virgins one. And uh, the one that we see most often in the church is, is uh, the painting by Walter Rain, who's a, a wonderful, terrific artist who I admire. And he did a painting called Five of Them Were Wise. 
the Ten Virgins parable is most often talked about by our church leaders and in our manuals and in general conference in terms of you know one group having made the better choice than the other group. And there seems to be a pretty good consensus on that interpretation. And Walter Vane's painting follows that interpretation. So we have symbolic light and shadow where the light represents the faith and and the good choice made by the wise virgins and uh, they're holding their their lit oil lamps but they also the um, landscape behind them is is more bright and on the other side of the painting we have the the foolish virgins who have no light there's no flame and even the the sky behind them has this dark cloud and there's uh more they're more in shadow i think also symbolically here rain shows the the wise virgins in a, a strong triangle shape, a pyramidal shape, which gives them visual and symbolic strength, whereas the other five are just sort of all over the place, falling down. There's no rhyme or reason to their grouping. And then there's this central void between the two groups that really separates them as here's the good side, here's the bad side. But what's interesting is when you start looking at the LDS images of Mary and Martha, they use similar symbolism and formal elements to tell that story visually too. And I think interpret it the same way. There's almost always light and visual strength given to Mary, whereas Martha is usually separated from Christ and Mary and is in shadow. You use the Mary versus Martha dichotomy to illustrate the problem with interpreting these biblical characters as a set pattern when there are several ways to interpret the text. How Mm -hmm. do we fall into that trap? So maybe I'll just walk through a couple of the images, if that's okay. There are more that I talk about in the article, but just talk about two or three here quickly. So Walter Rain, again, same artist, has a painting called Mary Heard His Word. And this is of Jesus in the home of Mary and Martha. You know, if you just look at the title, Mary Heard His Word, right off the bat, you're, you're leaving Martha out and you're privileging Mary. It's very clear that Mary is the, the person this painting is about. And we do have a similar light and shadow symbolism here where Mary has the candle lit in front of her, in between her and and Christ. And she's in this light from the candle, whereas Martha's in the background. She's in shadow. She's actually turned away from the source of light and has her scarf drawn over her head. Very symbolic that way. And then also just the figure placement that Mary and, and Christ have this sort of circular group between the two of them they're making eye contact with each other their figures are front and center and balance each other visually whereas martha is just sort of an afterthought in the background you don't even really see her face very well so in my denver uh, meeting house this painting was also there it was in the young women's room and as i was starting to think about all these ideas i went and looked at it one day and uh, one of the young men in the ward saw me looking at it and he said, boy, she really better get her act together. And he was talking about Martha. And I thought, wow, what a, what a great example of how painting can influence the way we think about scripture stories. He, I mean, that's, that's clearly what's, what's the message being told here. Another one that I think Mormons, members of the church, are very familiar with is Del Parsons' Christ with Mary and Martha. And in this one, we do see more unity between the, the three figures. The three of them make this triangle shape. But again, Mary is in front and she has this, you know, direct line of sight with Christ. And there's this, like, even the tops of their heads line up. 
their eyes line up, their their bodies sort of echo each other, and Martha is again sort of secondary in and in the background. You can definitely see the distance there between Christ and Martha. Mm-hmm. He's not looking at her at all. He doesn't seem to be very aware of her. He seems to be focused on Mary. A more recent one would be Kathleen Peterson, who is a great artist. This is called Mary and Martha with Jesus. And I love the way she is, interprets things. But in this one, uh, it's actually very similar to the Del Parson figure placement, the way the three figures make this sort of triangle shape. But, um, well, and I, I think there is, again, she leaves a little room for more unity of the figures and including Martha. But then she adds this table and Martha is pushed to the background by this table and physically separated from Christ and Mary. And Mary, we see her full length of her body, whereas Martha, we just see her shoulders and her head coming up. So, uh, so again, I think, uh, Mary continues to be privileged in images of this scripture story in LDS art. As you just mentioned, there's a fairly consistent interpretation of the Mary-Martha story. If we were to allow ourselves to look at other interpretations, what kind of meanings do you think we could recover? Yeah, so I think one way to think about this story is that it's not so much about wise versus foolish women, but it's about choosing to love God and how to be a disciple, in that there are varied forms of discipleship and ways to love God, that Martha's choice is not categorically wrong, and that also there's more to Mary than just the the passive listener that she's shown as in these images. I love what Eric Huntsman says about the Mary-Martha story as written in John. Mm -hmm. When their brother... dies, Uh and Jesus comes to save him. Right. Martha's out there right away. She has been listening. Mm -hmm. She knows the story. She knows that he will live again. Right. So it's not that she wasn't multitasking really well. Right. (laughs) I've even heard Amy Jill Levine say, you know, there may be more to it than just listening or working Martha may have wanted to point out that Mary was doing something that was inappropriate Mm -hmm. in Jewish culture. Mm -hmm. So we see this problem of oversimplifying stuff just by looking at a picture and saying, boy, she really needs to get her act together. Right. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think we do have to be a little careful looking at that story of of Lazarus um, in John, because it's a different author than Luke is the one who tells this story of Jesus in their home. And so, you know, it is a different author. He has different intentions in the way he's portraying the people. But I think you're right. I think it does tell us a little more about both sisters and maybe vindicates Martha a little bit that that there's a lot more to her than is represented in the Luke story. In the Luke story, is there textual evidence to support a nuanced interpretation? Yeah, so uh, you mentioned that Martha is the one who calls out Mary, and um, Chaco Kazaki, the former Relief Society General Presidency member, has written about how Jesus didn't really judge either woman, if you read it carefully. He doesn't ever say that Martha's choice is wrong. Martha, you know, comes to him to say, Mary's making the wrong choice here. She should be helping me. Why don't you tell her to help me? And he doesn't say that Mary's choice is wrong or Martha's choice is wrong. 
it's Martha that's bringing the judgment in the story. And then also Bonnie D. Parkin, the former Relief Society general president, said in, in a general conference talk that Mary expressed her love by hearing his word and Martha expressed hers by serving him. They both expressed love, that it wasn't one is good and one is bad, but they both showed their love for Christ in different ways. You walked us through some examples that show this wise and foolish motif in Mary and Martha, the dichotomy. Are there other Latter-day Saint depictions of Mary and Martha that don't follow the same motif? Yeah, there's. I think there's one big counterexample here, and that's Minerva Teichert that I mentioned at the beginning that, that I had seen in my Denver Relief Society room. And this is called Jesus at the Home of Mary and Martha. She did this in 1935, so earlier than any of the other depictions we've looked at, which is kind of interesting. This is owned by the BYU Museum of Art. So it doesn't fall into the category of what I've called official LDS art. But her image presents Mary and Martha in a radical new way. There is more unity of the figures. If you look at the image, all three of the figures are contained within this archway that she's painted on, and they form a a unified circular group. The light reaches all of the figures. Martha's not hiding in the shadows anymore. She even has a little fire next to her, so that that symbolic light is just right there with her in her kitchen. Minerva Teichert's style is a lot more sketchy, loose, looser brushwork, less defined facial features than any of the other depictions we've looked at, which I, I think is also important here. When I've actually seen this piece in person at, at the BYU Museum of Art, and when you see it in person, you really get a sense for just how sketch-like it is, that you see parts where the canvas is peeking through the paint, you see the the charcoal outlines on the little stools that they're sitting on and just the really dry application of paint and the the haziness of the features. But what I think is really fascinating here is that Mary is portrayed as doing something active. So this is really the only time we see Mary doing something and not just sitting there listening passively. And this is revolutionary, not just for LDS depictions of the story, but for any other Christian, um, non-Mormon depictions of this story. We really hardly ever see text in this image. And here, Mary's actually reading the text. So there's this sort of Hebrew scroll that they're looking at. Christ is pointing at it with his finger as if guiding Mary's reading of the scriptures. And Mary's reading it. She's sitting there reading the text. I think this is amazing that it shows her reading the text and, and doing something active and not just sitting there passively. And it shows both women making a choice and exercising their agency in a very Mormon way. This is new. This is different from the way the story has been depicted in other Christian denominations. So I think that's really exciting. It shows Martha making her choice to serve the food, and it shows Mary making her choice to read the scriptures there and sit with Christ. I love that. In your article, you spent quite a bit of time on this painting. It was interesting to me. This is not a realistic depiction. Mary would not be reading Hebrew. (laughs) Jesus would not be reading Hebrew or Aramaic, whatever it was. (laughs) But the scriptures function symbolically. And you use the term iconography, which is not something we think of in association with 
our church. Can you define that term and tell us how you feel it functions in this picture? Sure. Yeah. So in art, when we talk about iconography, we really just mean symbols or the way things are represented visually. So as a couple of examples, in Christian art, we often see the Holy Ghost represented as a dove, or we see Christ represented as a lamb, or white lilies symbolize purity, often associated with uh, the Virgin Mary in Christian art. Here, I think Teichert has used some symbolism or iconography. I didn't actually mention this in, in the paper, but once I looked at it in person, right behind these figures on the table, it's even more dramatic in person. You see a loaf of bread and, and a jug, and I would assume it's wine. <laughs> so we've got bread and wine. And then Martha is carrying a plate, and it's so hard to tell in the reproductions what's on the plate, but in person, it looks like grapes. So we've got grapes and wine and bread right there with Christ and these two women. And I think that's got to be a symbol of the sacrament. And that's also really revolutionary to show these women may be participating in the sacrament with Jesus there. Also, the text itself is a symbol here. The text is so prominent. It's the central part of the image. It has light on it. It's kind of the color of it is lighter than the rest of the background there. And then Christ points to it with his finger. And, and again, it's hard to tell in these reproductions, but his finger is really highlighted in the real painting. So it really draws the viewer's eye right to the text that is meant to be the central part of this painting. And I think the text is a symbol here for Teichert that these these two sisters are reading the text, which would be Old Testament here, but they're also in the text. They're in the New Testament. And there's this really interesting textuality there of, of performing text, but also reading text. And then also in John, he talks about Christ being the word. And there's this symbol very dramatically here, of the word represented and the way that the word or, or the scriptures, the text, draws us to the word or Christ, that that's a continued presence in, in the lives of men and women today. The depictions you've talked about so far are fairly old. Do we have any modern depictions? There have been some artists lately who have depicted the story. Jorge Coco is one who does his sacro-cubism style, but the way he depicts it is still pretty traditional in terms of the passive Mary and then an active Martha working in the kitchen and a similar image figure placement. Emily McPhee is another artist who did one in 2015, and in this one I think you see a little bit more of Mary maybe exercising her agency, making a choice. She seems a little more engaged, but again, you, you do see Mary privileged over Martha her figure is larger. She's facing the viewer, whereas Martha is sort of in the background and in sort of a contorted position and looking away from the viewer. And then I did stumble upon one just from 2017 by Rose Daytok Dahl called Careful and Troubled. This one really focuses on Martha and Jesus and Mary are in the background. It reminds me a lot of the Velasquez version of Mary and Martha from the 17th century, where you have a half-length figure of uh, Martha that's very close to the pitcher plane and, and covered with these food and, and instruments of kitchen preparation, household items, and then Christ and, and Mary in the background, and a similar sort of interplay of, 
it calling to contemporary women to think about their own lives and their own choices. So I thought that was an interesting new one. It is hard to find um, LDS art sometimes because there isn't just one catalog or one place where you can go to say, I want to see all the you know, Mormon depictions of Mary and Martha. And so you have to kind of piece it together and, and look around. I've been really excited about the work going on at the Mormon Art Center with Richard Bushman and Glenn Nelson, trying to bring LDS artists together more and to have more literature and, and more cataloging of the art that's out there. Thank you. Those are some exciting new trends. I'm going to try to summarize the argument of the article. And you tell me if I've got the gist of it, okay? Okay. And that is Latter-day Saint art tends to be realistic. And we take our art seriously. That's Mm -hmm. how we interpret our scripture sometimes. And maybe there's a nuanced way at looking at these stories. So with that in mind, what would you like to see Latter-day Saints do with the arguments you presented in your article? Sure. Yeah. So I'm not opposed to having official artwork. I think there's nothing wrong with that. But I do think we can bring to it an understanding that it's not a photograph, that there can be more than one way to, to visualize a scripture story or a historical event, and that when we look at paintings or drawings, it's one artist's interpretation of what happened, and it's not necessarily the only way to think about it. We can look carefully, we can see what that image offers as one possibility and not necessarily the only way. And I think the church, too, in providing multiple depictions of the same story can leave room for for more nuanced interpretations and I was really excited to see in the new Come Follow Me manuals that there's a lot of new art and different artists that have been represented before. And I think that's just terrific to have in the minds of the LDS audience these different ways of thinking about or of visualizing scriptures and, and historical events. Thank you, Jenny, for visiting with me today and coming all the way from Virginia to record this podcast. In our show notes, I will put a link to this article so you can see all the lovely artwork that Jenny has discussed. Thank you. Thank you. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.